Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces, The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book. The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below. Chapter 10 of The Marrow of Tradition This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White The Marrow of Tradition by Charles Waddell Chestnut Chapter 10 Delamere Plays a Trump Carteret did not forget what General Belmont had said in regard to Tom. The Major himself had been young, not so very long ago, and was inclined toward indulgence for the foibles of youth. A young gentleman should have a certain knowledge of life, but there were limits. Clara's future happiness must not be imperiled. The opportunity to carry out this purpose was not long delayed. Old Mr. Delamere wished to sell some timber, which had been cut at Bellevue, and sent Tom down to the Chronicle office to leave an advertisement. The Major saw him at the desk, invited him into his sanctum, and delivered him a mild lecture. The Major was kind, and talked in a fatherly way about the danger of extremes, the beauty of moderation, and the value of discretion as a rule of conduct. He mentioned collaterally the unblemished honor of a fine old family, its contemplated alliance with his own, and dwelt upon the sweet simplicity of Clara's character. The Major was a man of feeling and of tact, and could not have put the subject in a way less calculated to wound the amour propre of a very young man. Delamere had turned red with anger while the Major was speaking. He was impulsive, and an effort was required to keep back the retort that sprang once or twice to his lips. But his conscience was not clear, and he could not afford hard words with Clara's guardian and his grandfather's friend. Clara was rich, and the most beautiful girl in town. They were engaged. He loved her as well as he could love anything of which he seemed sure, and he did not mean that anyone else should have her. The Major's mild censure disturbed slightly his sense of security, and while the Major's manner did not indicate that he knew anything definite against him, it would be best to let well enough alone. "'Thank you, Major,' he said, with well-simulated frankness. "'I realize that I may have been a little careless, more from thoughtlessness than anything else, but my heart is all right, sir, and I am glad that my conduct has been brought to your attention, for what you have said enables me to see it in a different light. I will be more careful of my company hereafter, for I love Clara, and mean to try to be worthy of her.' Do you know whether she will be at home this evening? I have heard nothing to the contrary, replied the Major warmly. Call her up by telephone and ask, or come up and see. You're always welcome, my boy. Upon leaving the office, which was on the second floor, Tom met Ellis coming up the stairs. It had several times of late occurred to Tom that Ellis had a sneaking fondness for Clara. Panoplied in his own engagement, Tom had heretofore rather enjoyed the idea of a hopeless rival. 
Ellis was such a solemn prig, and took life so seriously that it was a pleasure to see him sit around sighing for the unattainable. That he should be giving pain to Ellis added a certain zest to his own enjoyment. But this interview with the major had so disquieted him that upon meeting Ellis upon the stairs he was struck by a sudden suspicion. He knew that Major Carteret seldom went to the Clarendon Club, and that he must have got his information from someone else. Ellis was a member of the club, and a frequent visitor. Who more likely than he to try to poison Clara's mind, or the minds of her friends, against her accepted lover? Tom did not think that the world was using him well of late. Bad luck had pursued him, in cards and other things, and despite his assumption of humility, Carteret's lecture had left him in an ugly mood. He nodded curtly to Ellis, without relaxing the scowl that disfigured his handsome features. "'That's the damn sneak who's been giving me away,' he muttered. "'I'll get even with him yet for this.' Delamere's suspicions with regard to Ellis's feelings were not, as we have seen, entirely without foundation. Indeed, he had underestimated the strength of this rivalry and its chances of success. Ellis had been watching Delamere for a year. There had been nothing surreptitious about it, but his interest in Clara had led him to note things about his favored rival which might have escaped the attention of others less concerned. Ellis was an excellent judge of character, and had formed a very decided opinion of Tom Delamere. To Ellis, unbiased by ancestral traditions, biased perhaps by jealousy, Tom Delamere was a type of the degenerate aristocrat. If, as he had often heard, it took three or four generations to make a gentleman, and as many more to complete the curve and return to the base from which it started, Tom Delamere belonged somewhere on the downward slant, with large possibilities of further decline. Old Mr. Delamere, who might be taken as the apex of an aristocratic development, had been distinguished during his active life, as Ellis had learned, for courage and strength of will, courtliness of bearing, deference to superiors, of whom there had been few, courtesy to his equals, kindness and consideration for those less highly favored, and above all, a scrupulous sense of honor. His grandson Tom was merely the shadow without the substance, the empty husk without the grain. Of grace he had plenty. In manners he could be perfect, when he so chose. Courage and strength he had none. Ellis had seen this fellow, who boasted of his descent from a line of cavaliers, turn pale with fright and spring from a buggy to which was harnessed a fractious horse, which a negro stable-boy drove fearlessly. A valiant carpet-knight, skilled in all parlor exercises, great at whist or euchre, a dream of a dancer, unexcelled in cake-walk or coon impersonations, for which he was in large social demand. Ellis had seen him kick an inoffensive negro out of his path, and treat a poor white man with scant courtesy. He suspected Delamere of cheating at cards, and knew that others entertained the same suspicion. For while regular in his own habits, his poverty would not have permitted him any considerable extravagance. Ellis's position as a newspaperman kept him in touch with what was going on about town. He was a member, proposed by Carteret, of the Clarendon Club, where cards were indulged in within reasonable limits, and a certain set were known to bet dollars in terms of dimes. 
Delamere was careless, too, about money matters. He had a habit of borrowing right and left, small sums which might be conveniently forgotten by the borrower, and for which the lender would dislike to ask. Ellis had a strain of thrift, derived from a Scotch ancestry, and a tenacious memory for financial details. Indeed, he had never had so much money that he could lose track of it. He never saw Delamere without being distinctly conscious that Delamere owed him four dollars, which he had lent at a time when he could ill afford to spare it. It was a prerogative of aristocracy, Ellis reflected, to live upon others, and the last privilege which aristocracy in decay would willingly relinquish. Neither did the aristocratic memory seem able to retain the sordid details of a small pecuniary transaction. No doubt the knowledge that Delamere was the favored lover of Miss Pemberton lent a touch of bitterness to Ellis's reflections upon his rival. Ellis had no grievance against the aristocracy of Wellington. The best people had received him cordially, though his father had not been of their caste. But Ellis hated a hypocrite, and despised a coward, and he felt sure that Delamere was both. Otherwise he would have struggled against his love for Clara Pemberton. His passion for her had grown with his appreciation of Delamere's unworthiness. As a friend of the family, he knew the nature and terms of the engagement, and that if the marriage took place at all, it would not be for at least a year. This was a long time. Many things might happen in a year, especially to a man like Tom Delamere. If for any reason Delamere lost his chance, Ellis meant to be next in the field. He had not made love to Clara, but he had missed no opportunity of meeting her and making himself quietly and unobtrusively agreeable. On the day after this encounter with Delamere on the stairs of the Chronicle office, Ellis, while walking down Vine Street, met old Mrs. Ochiltree. She was seated in her own buggy, which was of ancient build and pattern, driven by her colored coachman and man of all work. "'Mr. Ellis,' she called in a shrill voice, having directed her coachman to draw up at the curb as she saw the young man approaching. "'Come here. I want to speak to you.' Ellis came up to the buggy and stood uncovered beside it. "'People are saying,' said Mrs. Ochiltree, "'that Tom Delamere is drinking hard and has to be carried home intoxicated two or three times a week by old Mr. Delamere's man Sandy. Is there any truth in the story?' "'My dear Mrs. Ochiltree, I am not Tom Delamere's keeper.' Sandy could tell you better than I. You are dodging my question, Mr. Ellis. Sandy wouldn't tell me the truth, and I know that you wouldn't lie. You don't look like a liar. They say Tom is gambling scandalously. What do you know about that? You must excuse me, Mrs. Ochiltree. A great deal of what we hear is mere idle gossip, and the truth is often grossly exaggerated. I am a member of the same club with Delamere, and gentlemen who belong to the same club are not in the habit of talking about one another. As long as a man retains his club membership, he's presumed to be a gentleman. I wouldn't say anything against Delamere if I could. You don't need to, replied the old lady, shaking her finger at him with a cunning smile. You are a very open young man, Mr. Ellis, and I can read you like a book. You are much smarter than you look, but you can't fool me. Good morning. Mrs. Ochiltree drove immediately to her niece's, where she found Mrs. Carteret and Clara at home. Clara was very fond of the baby, and was holding him in her arms. He was a fine baby, 
and bade fair to realize the bright hopes built upon him. "'You hold a baby very naturally, Clara,' chuckled the old lady. "'I suppose you are in training. "'But you ought to talk to Tom. "'I have just learned from Mr. Ellis that Tom is carried home drunk two or three times a week, "'and that he is gambling in the most reckless manner imaginable.' Clara's eyes flashed indignantly. Ere she could speak, Mrs. Carteret exclaimed, "'Why, Aunt Polly, did Mr. Ellis say that?' "'I got it from Dinah,' she replied, "'who heard it from her husband.' who learned it from a waiter at the club, and, psh, said Mrs. Carteret, mere servant's gossip. No, it isn't, Olivia. I met Mr. Ellis on the street and asked him point-blank, and he didn't deny it. He's a member of the club and ought to know. Well, Aunt Polly, it can't be true. Tom is here every other night, and how could he carry on so without showing the signs of it? And where would he get the money? You know he has only a moderate allowance. He may win it at cards. It's better to be born lucky than rich, returned Mrs. Ochiltree. Then he has expectations and can get credit. There's no doubt that Tom is going on shamefully. Clara's indignation had not yet found vent and speech. Olivia had said all that was necessary, but she had been thinking rapidly. Even if all this had been true, why should Mr. Ellis have said it? Or, if he had not stated it directly, he had left the inference to be drawn. It seemed a most unfair and ungentlemanly thing. What motive could Ellis have for such an act? She was not long in reaching a conclusion which was not flattering to Ellis. Mr. Ellis came often to the house, and she had enjoyed his society in a friendly way. That he had found her pleasant company had been very evident. She had never taken his attention seriously, however, or regarded his visits as made especially to her, nor had the rest of the family treated them from that point of view. Her engagement to Tom Delamere, though not yet formally ratified, was so well understood by the world of Wellington that Mr. Ellis would scarcely have presumed to think of her as anything more than a friend. This revelation of her aunt's, however, put a different face upon his conduct. Certain looks and sighs and enigmatical remarks of Ellis, to which she had paid but casual attention and attached no particular significance, now recurred to her memory with a new meaning. He had now evidently tried, in a roundabout way, to besmirch Tom's character and undermine him in her regard. While loving Tom, she had liked Ellis well enough as a friend, but he had abused the privileges of friendship, and she would teach him a needed lesson. Nevertheless, Mrs. Ochiltree's story had given Clara food for thought. She was uneasily conscious, after all, that there might be a grain of truth in what had been said, enough, at least, to justify her in warning Tom to be careful, lest his enemies should distort some amiable weakness into a serious crime. She put this view of the case to Tom at their next meeting, assuring him, at the same time, of her unbounded faith and confidence. She did not mention Ellis's name, lest Tom, in righteous indignation, might do something rash, which he might thereafter regret. If any subtler or more obscure motive kept her silent as to Ellis, she was not aware of it, for Clara's views of life were still in the objective stage, and she had not yet fathomed the deepest recesses of her own consciousness. Delamere had the cunning of weakness. He knew, too, better than anyone else could know, 
how much truth there was in the rumors concerning him and whether or not they could be verified too easily for him to make an indignant denial after a little rapid reflection he decided upon a different course clara he said with a sigh taking the hand which she generously yielded to soften any suggestion of reproach which he may have read into her solicitude you are my guardian angel i do not know of course who has told you this pack of lies for i can see that you have heard more than you have told me but i think i could guess the man they came from i am not perfect clara though i have done nothing of which a gentleman should be ashamed there is one sure way to stop the tongue of calumny my home life is not ideal grandfather is an old weak man and the house needs the refining and softening influence of a lady's presence i do not love club life its ideals are not elevating with you by my side dearest i should be preserved from every influence except the purest and the best don't you think dearest that the major might be induced to shorten our weary term of waiting oh tom she demurred blushingly i shall be young enough at eighteen and you are barely twenty-one but tom proved an eloquent pleader and love a still more persuasive advocate clara spoke to the major the same evening who looked grave at the suggestion and said he would think about it they were both very young but where both parties were of good family in good health and good circumstances an early marriage might not be undesirable tom was perhaps a little unsettled but blood would tell in the long run and marriage always exercised a steadying influence the only return therefore which ellis received for his well-meant effort to ward off mrs ochiltree's embarrassing inquiries was that he did not see clara upon his next visit which was made one afternoon while he was on night duty at the office in conversation with mrs carteret he learned that clara's marriage had been definitely agreed upon and the date fixed it was to take place in about six months meeting miss pemberton on the street the following day he received the slightest of nods when he called again at the house after a week of misery she treated him with a sarcastic coolness which chilled his heart how have i offended you miss clara he demanded desperately when they were left alone for a moment offended me she replied lifting her eyebrows with an air of puzzled surprise why mr ellis what could have put such a notion into your head oh dear i think i hear doty i know you'll excuse me mr ellis won't you sister olivia will be back in a moment and we're expecting aunt polly this afternoon if you'll stay a while she'll be glad to talk to you you can tell her all the interesting news about your friends end of chapter ten recording by james k white chula vista Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces, The Marrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book. The Marrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below.